Lord Jesus, we thank and praise you that we come to a risen Saviour, one who is alive and not who is dead in a tomb. And Lord, we thank and praise you that you are risen and you are reigning. And Lord, we thank you that we can come with our prayers this morning, knowing that you will hear, you will listen, and you will answer. Lord, we do pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who live under persecution, who because of their love for you, suffer in many different ways. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen them, that you would encourage them. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray you help them to stand firm, to declare their faith. And Lord, we pray for those that persecute them, that Lord Jesus, you would touch their hearts as they see you revealed in these Christians. We pray that their hearts might be warmed and their hearts might be turned to you. We pray for the Goodman family, Lord, or some of them return now to Thailand. Pray for Andrew and Shona and the work that they do. Pray that you'd bless it and that by the power of your spirit you would spread your good news amongst the Shan people. Pray for the families that uh, are left behind, that Lord, you would encourage them, that Lord, you'd bless them in their endeavors here. Pray as a family, although they are far apart, Pray that they might be united in their love for one another. Pray that their love for each other and for you might grow. We pray too for our nation in these times of difficulty, times of confusion, times perhaps of division. Lord, we pray that uh, you might work a great miracle in this country. Pray that though we may have gone very far away from you, pray that you might draw us back. Pray that there might be a real moving of your Holy Spirit in this land. We might see many come to the faith in the Lord Jesus. Pray for our government, Lord, that there might be those that uh, in the government that will acknowledge you and seek a way of righteousness and a way of justice. Pray, Lord, that your hand might be upon them. Lord, as they govern us, they might govern us in a right way, in a way for the benefit of all. Lord, we pray too for the leadership of this church. Pray for David as he's on sabbatical. That Lord Jesus, you might refresh him, you might give him a really great time with his family in Canada. And pray for all the leadership team, again in times of change, that you would strengthen and encourage them. You'd fill them each day with your wisdom. That they might know your spirit's guiding and leading. That together with us as your church, we might really move forward under your headship. We might follow you and do that which you want us to do. That we might see your Holy Spirit moving in great power in this community. That it might be to your praise and to your glory. And Lord, we pray for the Holiday Club coming up at the end of this month. Pray for Anne and her team, that Lord Jesus, you bless them and help them in all the preparation that's still to be done. We pray that during that week, many youngsters might come here, and have a great week and a really good time. We pray that they might meet with you. That Lord Jesus, many lives might be touched. Not just the youngsters that come, Lord, but for the families from which they come. Pray that you would speak into their hearts and lives. That indeed lives might be transformed to your praise and to your glory. 
Now let's take a, a moment or two to bring our own individual prayers to the Lord. Let's bring those people that are on our hearts, whether it's your own personal needs or the needs of those close to you. And let's just spend a moment or two quiet bringing those needs to the Lord. Lord, we thank you that we bring our prayers to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who is always ready to listen, always ready to answer. Praise your holy name. Amen. Thanks, Phil. We continue this morning in our sermon series in Luke. Um, and the title that I've been given is The Sign of Jonah. So if you have a Bible with you, please turn to Luke chapter 11, and we'll be looking at verses 29 to 32. That's Luke chapter 11, 29 to 32. I'll just read it out for you. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, This is a wicked generation. It asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now one greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now one greater than Jonah is here. As we look at this passage this morning, let's first deal with the two characters that Jesus names in what he said. And they're characters that are written about in the Old Testament, Jonah and the Queen of the South. Let's deal with Jonah first. In the Old Testament book of Jonah, we can read that Jonah was a prophet whom God told to go and preach to the pagan city of Nineveh. But Jonah got the wobblies, mainly because there are 120,000 of them and only one of him. So he decided to get in a boat and go in the opposite direction. Now, God wasn't happy about this. So he thought, Jonah, look, listen up. I've told you clearly where I want you to go, and you're going the other way. So God sent a storm at sea to disrupt Jonah's plans, and Jonah got thrown overboard. God then sent a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish before being vomited onto dry land. Not a good sea trip. <laughs> Not a very relaxing cruise, was it? Um, so um, Jonah then got the message and he went to Nineveh. He preached to the city of Nineveh and all of the people repented. And that story is mentioned again in 
the New Testament in Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 40, where we can read a parallel account of our passage today. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That was a clear reference to Jesus' death, burial and resurrection, which took place over three days. So Jesus invokes the scriptures to show the kind of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that he knows the scriptures, to draw a parallel between himself and the prophet Jonah. And he also again uses scripture to mention another Old Testament character, the Queen of the South, who is also known as the Queen of Sheba. 1 Kings chapter 10 verses 1 to 13 and 2 Chronicles chapter 9 verses 1 to 12 describe the Queen of Sheba's visit to King Solomon who was king of Israel at the time. Most biblical scholars believe that Sheba was a city in modern day Ethiopia or Yemen and that the Queen of Sheba was the ruler of that city. There's also a possibility that she came from a city called Salala, which is in southern Oman, the country next door to Yemen. We lived in Oman for four years when I worked for Shell, and we visited Salala. Outside the city is a ruined palace, which is reputed to be the queen of Sheba's palace, and that's close to the border with Yemen. So, there it is. That is... um, the approach road runs round there to a peninsula which has... This is one of our photos. So, so Pam and I and Rebecca, who was strapped in a little car seat, we're here and our friends are in a vehicle here. So as we get closer, we've driven around and there on that promontory was... <laughs> reputed to be the ruin of the Queen of Sheba's palace. So that's slightly closer. There's not much left there, to be honest. That line is a security fence. So you can't actually go in to to see the ruins. But that is where the Queen allegedly lived. And that is not a Queen, but it's a little princess. So that is nothing really to do with what... But it's just a nice picture. So, so, the, <laughs> so this, is, um, this is Rebecca. Um, and um, she is, is standing in the ruins of one of the many ruined villages that ran along the coast of Oman. So back to the Queen of Sheba's palace. So it's a long way from where I've just shown you to Jerusalem. 1,560 miles. So if she lived there, she would have gone across the empty quarter all the way to there. And she, the journey would have had to have been undertaken. There was no, on one of these, one of these friendly chaps. So these move at about 18 to 25 miles an hour per day in a caravan. 
So it would have taken them about three months to get there and three months to get back. So if they left now, they'd be back at Christmas. Why did she bother to go all of that way? She went all of that way because she'd heard about Solomon's wisdom and splendour. And she said, you know, I'm going to check him out. You know, I think I'm a pretty impressive ruler. You know, you have to have things under control where you're ruling to be away for six months. So she probably thought, you know, I'm pretty impressive, but I've heard about, you know, this guy and I'm going to go and check him out. And the way that she did that was to ask him some hard questions. And that's what the religious leaders were doing with Jesus. And that's why Jesus mentions the Queen of Sheba. She tested Solomon with hard questions. They are constantly testing him with hard questions. But unlike them, she listened carefully to Solomon's wise answers. And she saw his wealth and splendour. And she was in awe of him. He was an impressive man. Jesus was an impressive and wise man, but beyond that, he was God incarnate. Fully human, fully divine. That's why he says someone greater than Solomon is here. And let's face it, the religious leaders didn't have to travel very far to work that out. Jesus was living next door. And he was saying to them, look, if you had interpreted the scriptures properly, if you had responded in the way the Queen of Sheba had, when her hard questions were answered wisely by Solomon, in the same way I'm answering yours, you wouldn't be asking for a sign. But it wasn't really a sign that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were after. They wanted a different type of Messiah. They had model A, they wanted model B. You see, Jesus was not doing what they were expecting. They were expecting military and political deliverance, not spiritual deliverance. That's what they thought the Old Testament prophecies told them to expect. So I know they get a hard time, don't they, and rightly so, but some of them were probably acting in what they thought was good faith. That's what they thought The scriptures were telling them. Some of them, like Nicodemus, were open to the possibility of spiritual deliverance, but most of them were not. So Jesus was an immense disappointment. Then he became an irritation because he exposed their hypocrisy. They said one thing and they did another. Then he became a threat a disturber of the peace. He was popular and the crowds flocked to him. And they were concerned that that would upset the Romans, who were very tough on civil order. So they didn't want a sign, really. They wanted a Messiah to fit their mould, a leader like Moses, who would lead the people out from under the ironclad heel of a foreign oppressor. Or like David, who conducted a campaign of guerrilla warfare against the established ruler of the time, King Saul. And then led the people into a golden age of prosperity and freedom. That's what they wanted. They didn't want Jesus to be out healing the sick, hobnobbing with the poor, and giving them a hard time about their religious practices. 
They wanted Jesus to be talking to, re- to rebel groups and agitators, forming a guerrilla army to overthrow the Romans. Ultimately, what they wanted, what they really wanted, was somebody to rebuild the temple to its former glory. The glory of what was called the first temple, which in fact Solomon had built. Something that the Romans, the Romans would not allow them to do that. They wanted worship to be focused on Caesar. In fact, when the Romans sacked Jerusalem in AD 70, they totally demolished the second or replica temple. They took all of the stones down. Not one stone was left standing on another. And all of that happened in the lifetime of this generation. The people that Jesus was talking to. And he uses the phrase this generation three times in the passage. But I don't think he was concerned so much with the Jewish people in that generation as with those who were leading them. In Matthew 16, verses 1 to 4, Jesus talks about the leaders of this generation where it says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, You cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation, or you guys, my paraphrase, looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Then Jesus left them. Strong words, aren't they? Adulterous. It's a strong word. It's a kind of a breakdown of trust, isn't it? And, And faithfulness. Because the people the leaders in particular, were spiritually unfaithful to God. Of all the peoples on earth, God had chosen the Jewish people. He was faithful to them, but they were unfaithful to him. They had turned what was meant to be an intimate, close, warm, straightforward relationship with a living, loving God into a cold and complicated one. Jesus himself pointed this out to them when he said, look, All God ever wanted from you in a relationship was two simple but profound things. One, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Two, love your neighbour as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these commandments, said Jesus. We can read that in Matthew 22, 37 to 39. So instead of two simple yet challenging, that's not easy to do, but richly rewarding, instead of two commandments, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, the Bible's name for the religious leaders of the Jewish people of the time, had over the years, hundreds of years in fact, accumulated not two, not ten, but over 600 commandments. Rules and regulations, and hundreds more were derived from those. Because some of them were quite a broad brush, and they didn't apply to particular situations and circumstances. So they had to have more to apply to the particular situations and circumstances. And the vast majority of them were negative. You shall not do. You can't do this, you can't do that. And all of this put the people off of a relationship with God because it was too much to remember. 
let alone do. The people said to themselves, you know what, we can't be bothered with all that. Let's go and do something that's easier. Let's go and worship an idol. So, see an idol? It's quite, there it is. So they thought. You know, and, and, and the rules and the regulations, are, they, they seem quite few, they seem quite fun. Let's go and do that. Let's not do that. That's just far too onerous. Or, for the more religiously minded, the other side of the coin, they said, well, let, let's devote all of our energies. This is what God wants in a relationship. He wants us to obey all of this stuff. All day, every day, to repress ourselves. That's effectively what they were doing, by the way. Some of those were repressing the wonderful nature that God has given us as human beings. Miserable. Let's, let, let, let's, do, let's do all of that. Let's concentrate on the rules and regulations and not on a close, intimate relationship with God. So one way or another, they had strayed. And that's why Jesus said they were adulterous or unfaithful. And Jesus was constantly challenging about that because it broke his heart, the very heart of God. Centuries of missing the point. Persistent unfaithfulness. Jesus was heartbroken, frustrated, heartbroken. And it all comes to a head in our passage today. And almost immediately after our passage, if you read on to verse 53, it says, When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. So you can see that they're not on the best of terms with each other. Jesus was probably thinking, what more do you want? I've healed the sick, I've raised the dead, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear. And still, you don't believe in me, do you? You don't, you're not interested. So I tell you what, don't expect any more signs from me except the sign of the prophet Jonah. In other words, my death and resurrection over a three-day period. He was still leaving the door open to those who were open to the possibility of a spiritual Messiah, giving them as long as possible. And Jesus was saying, look, you know, my, my death and resurrection, I can't give you a better sign than that. I am the Messiah. I am the real deal the prophet spoke about. Look again at the scriptures and you will see that God has to come in human form to save his people and all people from their sin. But many of the people, they didn't want saving from their sins. They wanted even more spectacular signs because life was pretty dull, I should imagine, in a, in a poor rural agricultural-based economy, not a lot going on. But if you had a few signs and a few wonders, well, that would spice the day up a bit, wouldn't it? Something to talk about. Something interesting. And maybe they wanted incontrovertible proof that Jesus was God. Maybe they wanted the heavens to part, God to come down in a fiery chariot, pull up next to Jesus, get out, have a, have a talk. That's a bit like people today, isn't it? God has given us the beautiful complexity of creation, of life. 
God has given us a written record of the miracles of Jesus, a written eyewitness account of his death and resurrection. And yet still people say that's not enough evidence to make them believe that God exists. More proof is needed. Or if not proof, it might be the well-meaning person who says, do you know what, I think it's wonderful. It's wonderful that you have found this faith. It obviously helps you, and that's good for you. It's not for me. Um, You know, I, I don't think God exists, and I'm not interested in that. But it's great that it helps you. Or in other words, it doesn't matter if God exists or not. What matters is whether you believe he does. It turns the focus of the discussion from God and what he has done for us to us and our beliefs. I I had a tutor at university who was a bit like this. Let's call him Dr. Stevens. And he and I used to go and collect sea anemones from the Gower Peninsula in Wales. And you think, what what were you doing that for? You sad person. It's because I was studying marine zoology. And I was doing a dissertation on the beadle anemone, Actinia equina. And so we spent a lot of time in the car together, me and Dr. Stevens. And to pass the time, we used to talk about our interest. So he was a bird watcher or an ornithologist. And I used to talk, because I was sort of quite keen and exciting and probably hard work. You know, I, I talked a lot about my faith. And he listened to me very patiently. And, and he, would, he would say to me, oh, Ricky, no, it, it's great that you believe what you believe. But it's good it's true for you, but it's not true for me. You see, I believe, said Dr. Stevens, in relative truth, not absolute truth. An example of absolute truth would be that God exists whether you or I believe that he does or not. In other words, what we believe doesn't really matter. The fact of the matter is that God exists. That's an absolute truth. So I asked um, my tutor how strongly he believed in this relative truth. And he said, oh, I believe it absolutely, he said. (laughs) Ah, I said. So he had invalidated his own argument, which I pointed out to him in my youthful enthusiasm, by, by admitting that something can be absolutely true. For example, the existence of God can be true, whether we believe it or not. And if you don't believe in God this morning, how desperate are you for a sign that God exists? Well, he's given us the sign of the cross. He's given us the sign of his nail-pierced hands. He's given us the sign of the empty tomb. And some people will say, you know, I just want to hear God speak to me from heaven and then I'll know. But God has, hasn't he? 1,400 years of speech recorded in the Bible. It's written down. God has already spoken to us. And if you're here this morning and you don't believe that God exists or you're not sure, you just kind of, I'd like to, but I'm just, I'm not sure. So if you'd like to know a bit more about why Christians are absolutely sure that God exists, then talk to me or the person you came with after the service. We really, really appreciate the opportunity to 
answer some of your tough questions. If you're a Christian here this morning and you do believe that God exists, you've accepted Jesus into your heart and life, you might still be tempted. I am sometimes to think, you know, I, I, need, I still need a sign from God. A sign that he loves me. A sign that he's interested in me. That he's close to me. Let's be encouraged this morning. God is close to us. He can't get any closer to us than he is in Christ Jesus. And we can't get any closer to God than when we are in Christ Jesus. And if we are in Christ Jesus and God's spirit is with us, he is always with us. God hasn't changed. You know, sometimes in your life where you sort of drift into that space of wanting a sign or doubting and, you know, that's only human, that's only natural. That will happen. But God doesn't change. He doesn't drift. He's the same yesterday, today and forever. So this morning, let's remind ourselves of the times when God has intervened in our lives so that we can be strengthened in our faith when the going gets tough. Do you need that encouragement this morning? Do you need someone to pray with you? To help you remember how God has helped you in the past? The prayer team, as ever, will be down at the front after the service. They'd love to pray with you. To help you reconnect to the closeness of God. To help remind you that God is with you. Here today, this morning, as he always has been and always will be now and forever. Amen. As the band come up, let's pray. Father God, we thank you that yesterday, today and forever, Jesus is the same. All may change, but Jesus never. Glory to his name. We thank you, Lord, that you are the rock. You are the harbour. You are the safe place where we can drop our anchor and be sheltered from the storm at sea. We thank you, Lord, that your spirit is with us, around us, beneath us, within us. And we pray that you would keep us and guide us. In Jesus' name. Amen.